In the last week of June, the Supreme Court typically releases its most impactful and often controversial decisions. This year was no exception. In a 6-3 decision released on June 30th, the Supreme Court ruled that a Colorado web designer, who is also an evangelical Christian, cannot be compelled by the state to create wedding websites for same-sex couples. Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and events. This week, we begin with a Supreme Court ruling that has many in the faith community worried that anti-discrimination state laws and statutes may now be challenged by businesses invoking their First Amendment rights. The plaintiff, Lori Smith, was represented by attorney Kristen Wagner. She's the president of the Alliance Defending Freedom, a conservative Christian legal advocacy organization that has successfully argued other religious freedom cases before the Supreme Court. In 2017, they represented the Colorado baker, who didn't want to make cakes for same-sex weddings because of his Christian beliefs. With the Supreme Court's ruling, Wagner touted the win as a victory for free speech for all. Lori is now free to speak and to create consistent with the core of who she is. This is a landmark victory for all Americans, regardless of one's beliefs. As the court today noted, it has long held that the opportunity to think for ourselves and to express those thoughts freely is among our most cherished liberties. Not everyone is celebrating. More than 30 faith-based and religious organizations and individuals signed the amicus brief, a friend of the court argument, that one's group's religious beliefs should not outweigh another group's civil rights. Among the signatories was Catherine Frank, a law professor at Columbia University Law School and the founder of its Law, Rights, and Religion Project. The amici brief Frank signed warned that a ruling for Lori Smith and 303 Creative would open the door to legal discrimination against minority groups, that it would, quote, decimate civil rights laws allowing segregation, including religious segregation, to flourish. Joining me now to talk about the case and its implications is one of the authors of that brief, Elizabeth Reiner-Platt. She's the director of Columbia's Law, Rights, and Religion Project. Elizabeth Reiner-Platt, welcome to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. It is a pleasure to have you joining me. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So I want to start by asking you about one of the big cases that lots of folks are talking about that I spent a good amount of time this weekend reading and trying to parse through. It's the case known as 303 Creative versus Elenis. This is the case about the website designer. Can you just lay out for listeners what was this case about? Why did it end up in the Supreme Court? Absolutely. So as you said, the basic facts involved a web design company called 303 Creative, which was owned by a woman named Lori Smith. And the company brought a lawsuit against the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, arguing that the state's anti-discrimination law violated her right to free speech. And essentially what she's arguing is that she has a constitutional free speech right to do two things. First, to turn away any same-sex couples that might come to her asking 
for her to create a wedding website for them. Um, and I, I think it's worth noting that this has not happened yet, uh, which created some sort of complicated questions around whether Smith you know, should have been able to kind of sue at all at this point. But essentially going forward, she wants the right to turn away any couples that do ask her for that service. And then she also wants to put something on her website saying that she wouldn't create wedding websites for same-sex couples. Usually, you know, you can't put up a sign that says you're not going to serve particular customers. So what you're saying is that she brought this case, even though she wasn't actually being asked by someone to create and had a client who said, hey, we're, we're getting married. It's a same-sex wedding uh, and we want you to build this website. There, That's that didn't happen here. She's asking for the right to explicitly signal to same-sex couples, I'm not your website designer. That's right. And that made the case different from, for example, Masterpiece Cake Shop, which we heard a couple years ago. So yes, she was doing this without any facts. And that that's one of the reasons we saw this kind of flurry of somewhat strange hypotheticals during oral argument, because we really had no facts to go on in this case. Your organization got into this. You guys filed an amicus brief with a host of other folks. Can you talk a little bit about the position you took and who was in your group? Absolutely. So we co-wrote an amicus brief along with the advocacy group Muslim Advocates and the law firm Hogan Lovells. And it was on behalf of 30 mainly faith-based organizations, including Christian, Jewish, Sikh, Hindu, um, Native American and some some other kind of faith-based groups. So even though 303 Creative was a free speech case, it often got framed as a conflict, again, kind of between gay rights on the one hand and religious freedom on the other, because Lori Smith is a person of faith herself. So it got framed as this kind of religious freedom case with the assumption that a win for the company, you know, would be a win for religion and for people of faith. And so what our brief tried to do is really challenge that narrative. And what we explained is that robust civil rights law is actually necessary to protect religious liberty in a pluralistic society. So before the passage of anti-discrimination law, religious minorities were routinely denied service in the public marketplace. Uh, I think a lot of people have probably heard about the Green Book. You know, there's that movie a couple years ago. Uh, but there was also the Jewish Vacation Guide, which served a really similar purpose and was published all the way until, I think, the mid-1960s. And so weakening civil rights law and going back to that kind of era of, you know, religious segregation in the public marketplace, we argued, would ultimately have the effect of chilling a lot more religious exercise and harming a lot more people of faith than it actually protected. I mean, there's absolutely nothing in the opinion that limits it to denials of service to same-sex couples. In terms of that buzzword, protected classes, there's no reason to think that this opinion is limited to the protected class of sexual orientation. And in fact, I do want to kind of flag one, I thought, really enlightening moment uh, in oral argument for anyone who thinks that this case can't possibly impact race discrimination. Um, I would point you to this really interesting moment in oral argument when Kristen Wagoner was being kind of asked about a, a photographer who would refuse to take photos of uh, children of color. And her response to that hypothetical was that, oh, well, this court has protected vile, awful, reprehensible, violent speech in the past. That was the quote. Um, so essentially, I think that's an admittance that 
yes, we, we might not like this speech, but we still have to protect it even when it comes to, for example, uh, denials of service based on, on race. So what did the court actually do? What did the court rule this past week? So the court ruled that requiring the company, 303 Creative, to create wedding websites for same-sex couples, if she chose to create them for different sex couples, that that would constitute compelled speech and it would violate the free speech clause. The opinion really kind of ignored and didn't discuss at all the impact of that kind of denial of service on on actual people. It talked about uh, the government's interest in the case as being the interest in sort of enforcing conformity with an official state position on marriage didn't really engage in at all about the dignitary interests of couples being turned away. And it just said, this is government compelled speech and it's not permissible. Help me understand something. How is it that one group's religious beliefs are being given so much weight and importance versus another group's ability to be protected from discrimination. And I think the roots and history of that are well known to listeners. The court is very, very good at seeing discrimination against conservative Christians and very bad at seeing and understanding discrimination against other groups. We've seen, you know, well beyond the religious liberty cases. I'm thinking, of course, about the affirmative action case this week. I think really the clearest example of this problem is the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision in which the court did a really detailed kind of searching review of the record to find that Jack Phillips, the baker who didn't want to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding, had actually been the victim of religious persecution by the Equal Rights Commission. You know, and then a couple weeks later, the court upheld the Trump's travel ban, which had more evidence of animus against Muslims than you could possibly find in a case. You usually don't have such persuasive evidence of animus um, as you did in that kind of case. So, yeah, I think it's pretty shocking. What I'm hearing you say is that there is a conservative legal agenda that is in play that is prioritizing certain religious beliefs over other beliefs and groups. Yeah, and it's not even a very hidden agenda. I mean, I think certainly the really obvious thing is that these justices uh, have been hand-selected to overturn the constitutional right to abortion in Roe v. Wade. I mean, there was really no, there was nothing hidden about that agenda, for instance. And I think they're frequently coming out of a you know, conservative legal movement that has been in operation very, very long time that has a lot of kind of legal priorities, but overturning Roe v. Wade was perhaps the number one kind of thing on the agenda. After looking at the cases this week with affirmative action and now the expansive reading of free speech, it makes me wonder if this is leading up to or a focus on Obergefell versus Hodges, the case that legalized same-sex marriage. I don't think that this current Supreme Court, if they had the opportunity to rehear Obergefell, I don't think it would turn out the same way. Do you see reason and concern that this conservative legal movement is going to now focus on looking for cases to challenge Obergefell v. Hodges? I think it's possible, but I also think you know, the strategy with Roe was kind of death by a thousand cuts. So I don't know if, you know, next term they're going to go out and find something to flat out overturn Obergefell. 
Um, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I also think that they're making a lot of progress without necessarily doing that, right? We have a wide multi-pronged attack on civil rights laws and LGBTQ rights in a whole host of arenas. The Fifth Circuit just issued a ruling saying employers shouldn't have to hire LGBTQ workers. There have been a number of cases holding that teachers have the right to misgender their students. In Fulton, the court ruled that the government not only may, but in some circumstances actually has to fund nonprofit organizations that refuse to provide services to same-sex couples. I would say, you know, is Obergefell at risk? I mean, certainly I think it's more at risk now than it was when it was passed. But I also think there's a lot to worry about beyond Obergefell. What else are you worried about? I worried about really the state of, of civil rights law and commitment to pluralism generally, um, the erosion of the establishment clause, uh, the kind of weighing of certain constitutional rights, the Second Amendment, for example, certain kind of constituencies um, above other rights, like, for example, public health or equality rights. I want to pick up, though, on what you said. The decisions from this term, we have to be mindful of the extension of religious liberty to an individual versus the recognition or the extension of religious liberty and First Amendment rights to a corporation. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. I think one thing is if you're talking about expanding religious liberty and dress of corporation, there's going to be a lot more risk that that is going to have an impact on third parties. There's been a lot of focus, understandably so, on for-profit entities, but I think it can also really be a concern with nonprofits as well. You know, there are massive hospital systems that, um, for example, Baylor, Scott, and White in Texas, they serve um, a patient population the size, size of Georgia. Catholic hospitals now serve one in six hospital beds. So what does it mean to allow a religious hospital to follow their religious precepts in providing medicine to a diverse population that might not share those beliefs. I think that's another way in which kind of Christian right movements have been able to really expand institutional rights while focusing on individuals that maybe have powerful story or that can do a lot of like really get their name in the press. People like Jack Phillips or in 303 Creative, Lori Smith, you know, their pictures were everywhere. Jack Phillips, I think, even wrote a book. They were doing tons of media work. But the name of the case was not Lori Smith. It was 303 Creative. It was a corporate entity. So I think that's been like a really effective for them to kind of get these individuals who can then represent these corporate interests. We regularly feature on this program updates on attitudes, beliefs, and affiliations of Americans. And in 2023, we have probably one of the largest populations, particularly young populations of Americans who do not affiliate with institutional religion. And this seems to be happening at a time when the courts are expanding the rights of institutional religion in ways that I don't think the founders had in mind. I think it's a really interesting kind of thing you're flagging. And it does make me wonder because we always talk about, well, religious liberty should protect everyone, right? It should protect uh, the believer. It should protect the non-believer. But I think we haven't really 
thought enough about or conceptualized how we protect the religious beliefs of the nuns. Um, and that's N-O-N-E instead of N-U-N. People who often do actually have a faith, do have a religious identity, uh, they don't necessarily consider themselves atheists. But what does that religious um, practice mean to them? What does it mean in their lives? And how do we protect it under the law? I think is going to be a really fascinating question, and one that I actually really don't think we've grappled much with at all. If Lori Smith of 303 Creative can refuse to, you know, build a website citing her religious beliefs and invoking her First Amendment right to free speech and not being compelled, does that open the door for other business owners to say, you know what, I don't want to serve Jews or Muslims or Baha'i or Catholic because my version of Christianity teaches that all of those are false religions and therefore violate my deeply held beliefs and conscience. I don't think there's anything restricting this case to same-sex couples. And I think that was exactly sort of the scenario that we were trying to get at in our amicus brief is, you know, what about the dance teacher that says, I think modesty codes are sexist. And so I don't want to have anyone in my dance class who wears a hijab. We have a whole bunch of those kinds of hypotheticals in the case. I think we don't have to go back very far in history to see that actually happening. So yes, there's no reason to think that the denials of service for same-sex couples wouldn't also apply to denials of service because someone disagrees with religious faith, you know, denials of service. I won't do a wedding website or I won't do a website, I'm sorry, for um, your funeral or for a bar bat mitzvah or for another religious holiday. And I think, again, just to not to belabor the point, but I think that that's really harmful for religious liberty rather than protective of it because you're going to chill a lot of people from being able to kind of publicly act on their faith if they feel like uh, they can't get goods and services in the public marketplace if they are you know wearing a headscarf or a yarmulke or if they kind of talk about their faith in any way. This is a program that explores the role of beliefs. And so I want to close by asking you, if you see or feel that the personal religious beliefs of the justices has played any role into the string of rulings that have benefited Christian conservatives in the last five to seven years, it's not lost on me that the majority of justices are Catholic. The personal beliefs of the justices you know, may play some role. But I also think there are a lot of things playing a role. I mean, I think a lot of these cases, I kind of talked about how a lot of these cases fit sort of nicely in just the larger kind of conservative legal movement, even aside from religion. I mean, you can see 303 Creative as a decision about religion. You can also see it as a decision about corporate rights in the vein of Citizens United. So I think it's probably a confluence of a lot of things. And I think, you know, personal religious belief may be well be one of those. Um, but I, I would say I think it's certainly too easy to just pin it on a particular denomination. I mean, I think about, for example, <laughs> I work closely with Catholics for choice. And as they always like to say, the majority of Catholics don't want to see abortion banned. So I think the mere fact that they're Catholic, the Dobbs decision can't be ascribed to that alone. It's a larger ideology. What other cases do you have on your radar I would encourage folks to keep an eye out for cases in which 
people of faith are arguing that their religion requires them to do things like provide food and water to migrants crossing the desert, to help people access abortion care, um, to protest nuclear weapon facilities, to uh, preserve um, sacred land uh, from environmental degradation. So we did a report on that a few years ago called Whose Faith Matters, the Fight for Religious Liberty Outside the Christian Right. And I would say, if you are feeling less on the hopeful side, please do read that report because it just warms my heart to see all those amazing people of faith doing really wonderful humanitarian and justice work and fighting for their right to do so. Elizabeth Reiner Platt is the director of Columbia's Law, Rights, and Religion Project. Links to the project and reports mentioned during our conversation can be found in this week's show notes. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. We'll be back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. <laughs> 